There was a recent study in the Harvard Business Review, which uh, I think uh, was widely discussed. A lot of people, I think, have probably seen it. It was just widely discussed on Twitter and other social media. It said that uh, the USA was losing uh, $3 trillion a year because of excessive uh, meetings. Uh, the, the thing is, you know, the meeting, let's suppose that you, uh, you invite uh, 15 people to a, to a one-hour meeting. So that's 15 total hours of work that could be done. Could be done on something else or could be done on this meeting. Uh, you have to make sure that the meeting is actually worth you know, 15 hours of time that's being lost on everything else. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Laparta. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today over the last 23 years has been a CTO and co-founder at two different startups, both of which continue to thrive. He's in recent years been working as what he calls a fractional CTO. He's helping entrepreneurs of early stage startups discover the right product or market fit and then hire the right team to ensure maximum growth. The reason we're chatting is that last year he published a book. Uh, the book's called One-to-One Meetings Are Underrated. Group Meetings Are a Waste of Time. Uh, I don't think with that title I really need to explain what the book is about. It, it, uh, um, for, for British listeners will, will remember um, a, a series of adverts for um, a, a product called Ron Seal. And the strap line was, it does exactly what it says on the tin. And I think that book um, probably uh, could come under that category. And meetings are a bone of contention for a lot of people. You know, for for some, they find them essential to reconnect, to talk to people, to, to forge the relationships that we talk about in this podcast series. Others do find them in an inordinately inefficient way of getting things done. Uh, and a source of great stress. So it seems like a, a good topic for the Connected Leadership podcast. Uh, and an author of a book that says group meetings are a waste of time seems like the right person to have along. So, uh, Lawrence Krupner, thank you very much for joining me on the Connected Leadership podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. As I said, I think that this is a topic uh, that many people have opinions about. Uh, let's put it that way. So as I said in the introduction, too many meetings is a common complaint in business. Uh, is that fair? Do we have too many meetings? Do we just have the wrong type of meetings? You know, there was a recent study in the Harvard Business Review, which uh, I think uh, was widely discussed. And a lot of people, I think, have probably seen it. it was just widely discussed on Twitter and other social media. It said that uh, the USA was losing uh, $3 trillion a year because of excessive uh, meetings. Uh, the the thing is, you know, the meeting. Let's suppose that you uh, you invite uh, fifteen people to a to a one hour meeting. So that's fifteen total hours of work that could be done. Could be done on something else, or could be done on this meeting. Uh, you have to make sure that the meeting is actually worth, you know, fifteen hours of time that's being lost on everything else. Uh, and and maybe in some cases that can be justified. But I think what what happens there's a number of problems that come up with uh larger meetings uh the worst of which uh, i'll just mention the worst the worst problem i've seen is when the the person who's in the leadership position 
essentially thinks, well, big meetings are great because they save me so much time. You know, I get to meet with everyone at once. But then what they have is basically 15 one-on-one -on -one meetings. You know, they get to talk to this person. They get to talk to this person. They get to talk to this person. Uh, and from the point of view of the person in leadership position, absolutely, uh, it's, it's efficient. The problem is it's a, it's a big waste of time for, for those 15 people. A lot of times, you know, you look around the room. You'll see that people are bored. You'll see that they've checked out. They're maybe checking their phones. They, they are not participating. The kinds of meetings which are actually the most effective most of the time are one-on-one -on -one meetings. You know, a one-on-one -on -one meeting, especially a spontaneous one-on-one -on -one meeting, not necessarily a, a planned one-on-one -on -one meeting, uh, is you're, you're guaranteed you're guaranteed that it was essential because one of those people had something to say or something to ask from the other person. So both of those people need to be there. Both of those people need to participate. When you're having a meeting just to distribute information, you know, a lot of times you can just do that with text. You know, you can... Uh, send a message on Slack, or you can use Yammer or any of the other chat tools that are now used in inside of companies. Or you can send a WhatsApp message, or you can send an email. There's a you know we're, we are blessed with many technologies now that allow for the simple distribution of information. So there are situations where you know leaders feel that a large meeting is justified, but my emphasis is that. Um, in terms of the effectiveness of actually communicating with people, of actually getting information from people or communicating information to people and working out an actual problem, those generally happen. The, the, the most effective meetings are the smaller meetings, and the most effective of all tend to be the one-on-one -on -one meetings. So I, I hesitate to actually say that we have too many meetings, but I would say without qualification that we have too many large meetings. So that that that's that's really interesting, Lawrence. I, I I do want to come back to a couple of things you've talked about there. I, I want to come back and do a, a deeper look at the technology issue because I think that I can see on the face of it how that can work, but I think that there might be some limitations there, and I want to explore that with you. Um, I also want to look at how you identify what the right meeting is and and, and how you prioritize that. But before I do, so you're a successful entrepreneur. You've got two strong businesses going. You've got um, the, the, the mentoring and the support that you give to other startups now. Why did you write this book? Was it such a powerful sense of frustration that you felt you had to? Uh, what was your driver to, to invest the time into doing something like that? rather than just rail at your employees? <laughs> That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, so one, one issue that comes up <clears throat> is that a lot, of the, a lot of the entrepreneurs that I work with, you know, they've, these are brilliant people. These are ambitious people. They're very intelligent, and they've already studied the basics of entrepreneurship often. Uh, and so these are, in a sense, some of the basics are things that they should, in a sense, already know. Um, the surprising thing is that they they make mistakes uh, even though they should know better in a sense. You know, actually, a, a year ago, you uh, you interviewed Mark Hirschberg. You had him on this podcast, yes. and I listened to it. It was really brilliant. He made a point that, that I'll, I'll repeat here, which is learning about entrepreneurship and, and how to handle meetings, how to, how to do a lot of managerial tasks. This is not like you memorize a mathematical formula once. This is more like sports. You, know, you have to practice constantly. If you want to be great in uh, in basketball, if you want to be great, uh, you know, uh, taking uh, free throw shots, you need to practice all the time. If you want to be great in, in football, you have to practice all the time. It's the same with leadership. It's not something you just learn once from a book. It's something that needs to be practiced all the time. And there are some great 
management books that offer very advanced techniques. I've got a whole bookshelf of them uh, right next to me, you know, uh, from good to great and uh, the discipline of teams. Some really uh, the, the the coaching habit. Uh, these are some great books and they offer some really advanced techniques. And yet over and over again, what I run into is I don't see entrepreneurs getting tripped up because, you know, they've missed some advanced optimization in their workflows, they get tripped up by basics and often basics that they, they in a sense just need to be reminded about. Many of them, when I'm like, you know, you, you, when I point out their calendar, I'm like, you just had 15 hours of meetings this week and many of them were too large and many of them were unfocused. Many of them lacked an agenda. Many of them, you know, you, you failed to build um, relationships. You ended up just talking to a room. You weren't getting the feedback that you actually wanted. When I point these things out to them, they sort of nod their head and they look a little guilty and they're like, yes, yes, you're so right. I, I should know better. I'm just, in a sense, I'm, I'm like a, often in the role, it's sort of like being a sports coach. I'm just reminding them of things that they already know because it's, it's something they need to do repeatedly before they really start getting into the habit. And so having, having helped, you know, the, the worst thing to me, the saddest thing is seeing what is clearly a brilliant idea for a business, just a brilliant startup that either has a completely new innovation in some kind of uh, process or maybe a new technology or maybe a, a new level of uh, service or, or a new price point that's become possible in recent days because of some other change in the overall business context. You see this idea, you know, they, they describe it to you. You can see the potential. You want to see them succeed. Uh, it would be obviously wonderful for them personally. It would also be wonderful for the employees of the firm. And it would also be good for all of society. And it's so sad to see those startups fail because of some fairly basic level mistakes. So having given fairly similar advice to many entrepreneurs many, many times now over the course of many years, I found myself, you know, at first I was just writing um, essays and, and posting them to a weblog. And then sometimes I was, you know, printing them out. Sometimes I, you know, put, put them together as a white paper. And I was like, please read this. Finally, I, I thought that it was the time to collect all of that together uh, into yeah. a book. And it, it does make it somewhat easier for me to, you know, when I give them the advice, even when they know my history, they, they know some of the firms that I built in the past. They know the success that I've had. Still, they, uh, it, it helps them, I think, to, to sort of take it seriously when I can communicate, hey, this isn't just something I, I'm making up right on the spot. This is something that's growing out of my experience. This isn't simply a decree that I'm making right now. This is something I've seen other entrepreneurs struggle with, and I've learned from, I've learned from my experience. I've learned from their experience, and I'm, I'm trying to tell you, this is what I've seen work best. These are some things that you really should be uh, careful about. Sorry if that was a bit of a long-winded uh, answer. No, no, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It, it's, it's, I always say to, to my guests, I said to you before, it, you know, it's not about me hogging the stage. It's about conversation and it, it's about getting the best of your experience. So I, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Um, and and I, can, I can relate to looking at your diary and having too many meetings in a week. You know, and you feel like you're, you're not actually moving forward and getting anything done constructively very often. Um, I can also relate to deepening relationships and getting things done with strong meetings. So it is about getting that balance right. Uh, when I, I'm sure you're not saying, and, and I've, I've looked through your book, so I know you're not saying all large meetings are bad ideas. Uh, how do you look at the meetings that you're considering or are being suggested to you and prioritize effectively, um, both with large and small meetings, because I think a lot of 
one-to-one -one meetings, um, while all, everyone has potential, um, you can have too many of those as well. So how do you decide? How do you prioritize? And how do you say no? Sure. Now, I should, I should emphasize that although I have helped turn around some very large companies, like uh, you know, I worked at uh, Time Out, which is headquartered in London, and I worked with uh, Wine Spectator, which is part of M. Schenken Publications here in the U.S., huge, huge publishing firm. While I have worked with some large uh, companies and helped them uh, turn around, especially their, their technology architecture, uh, a lot of my experiences with um, smaller companies, uh, you know, a few hundred employees or less, and the book is sort of written with an emphasis on that. Yeah. So I should say there are some political dynamics that come up with really large organizations, which I didn't, uh, which I haven't spent too much time addressing, but I'll just briefly mention them. So if you're at the top of a very large organization and you want to, you're mentoring someone, you want them to have a great career, you sense that they are high potential, that they're going to become an incredible leader themselves. There are things you can do, obviously, to help them. You can invite them to give a talk to a very large meeting. And of course, in that, you're both signaling your confidence in them and you're, you're giving them tremendous, um, uh, you know, you're boosting their profile within the organization, both of which are, are important. Um, I didn't spend too much time talking about that kind of meeting, but of course, there are moments for that kind of large, uh, large gathering. There's also um, some, and I think this is, um, this is something that can be discussed because I don't think this is a slam dunk either way, but some CEOs, including successful CEOs, feel strongly that if they try to communicate a message just to their direct reports in the hopes that the direct reports will then turn around and communicate it all the way down the chain, that that can become a dangerous game of telephone and the message gets destroyed as it travels to the organization. And so they feel strongly sometimes, especially when giving a strategic vision, what they really need to do is they need to get the whole company together. They need to have an all hands. They need to give a speech. And I can't say that that's entirely wrong, right? Because we've seen very successful uh, CEOs who who followed that and and have seemingly had some uh, success. I would say that in the cases where those very large meetings work out well, it's essentially part of the overall marketing strategy. Uh, it's internal marketing, which is important. I, I don't mean to downplay that in any way. The the C CEO is saying basically, you know, this is our strategic vision. This is the marketing we're putting out to the world. I want everyone inside the organization to understand the message that we're putting out to the world. And I want you to hear it directly from me. So there's certainly that. And, and even in smaller organizations, there are absolutely times when larger meetings are uh, important. Um, my message here isn't that all large meetings are bad. My message is that meetings tend to be more effective when they're smaller. And, and again, the most effective meetings that I've seen are one-on-one are, are -on -one meetings. And, and again, the simplest measure of that is if you have a large meeting and you look around and you see half the room is bored because they're not engaged, they don't actually need that information or they don't need to communicate information to the rest of the team that's been invited to that meeting, then you know you probably invited too many people. And I simply advocate that people in leadership positions need to need to demonstrate some real self-discipline in terms of who they invite. You know, the great, uh, great business uh, guru, uh, uh, Peter Drucker, uh, told the story of, of a CEO who was trying to be democratic, was trying to be open, transparent, democratic, and so kept inviting all of his direct reports and their direct reports every meeting. And those direct reports and the other direct reports kind of felt like it was mandatory because, you know, boss invites you to a meeting. Who are you to say no? But uh, later the CEO made it very clear that it was optional. And many of those people stopped coming because they were like, I've got other work to do. I'm extremely busy. I've got this incredible deadline on Friday. I really want to get it done. I, I don't have time for this one hour meeting right now. And so it, it's good. It's good. I understand the impulse to try to be democratic and invite everyone. But
But especially when you're in a leadership position, you know, just keep in mind many of those people might not understand it when it's optional. They might feel like you're commanding them to show up and they might actually have nothing to contribute or they might feel strongly that their own work is actually more beneficial. So there's are situations where even small organizations uh, should have larger meetings. A lot of those tend to be more social than uh, than productivity oriented. You know, work is fundamentally social. Humans are social beings and we come together and we form organizations to because the organizations are more productive than a bunch of individuals working alone. There's something very fundamental about uh, the, the socialness of work, and that has to be recognized. Human beings want connection, they need connection, and actually having good connections makes an organization much, much stronger and more efficient. So there's certainly room for having having a, a social gathering that helps build morale um, and, and perhaps, again, keep everyone on the same page regarding you know the overall marketing message to the outside world. But overall, overall, when you're trying to work through difficult issues, you'll want the smallest possible meetings. You know, if, if there's a really tough issue that needs to be decided about how to invest some money or what the next marketing campaign is going to be or what technology to we should invest in, what architecture to go with, those are meetings where generally you actually want to just get together the key people. And in particular, if, if you're the CEO or in the top leadership position, you, you, you need to work something out with one direct report just meet with that one person just go leave yourself the time to go in depth and really understand the whatever that particular direct report can communicate to you you know if they're head of marketing let them fully communicate to you what the marketing team needs what their perspective is if it's the head of technology let them fully communicate to you what the issues are you know and leave yourself open to really understanding what problems and what possibilities are are there Andy's new book, Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength, is out now. Looking at the importance of asking for help and admitting vulnerability, it is an essential read in challenging times. Order your copy from Amazon and all good book retailers now, or visit andylapata.com forward slash just ask. So just the, the, the last part of my question, and I, I have a habit of, of uh, layering questions. So uh, I do want to come back to the last part of that. You've talked about how to communicate that meetings are optional so that people can say no. But what about meetings that you're invited to that you feel are going to be a drain on your time rather than a benefit? How do you politely decline those? No, that's an excellent question. I've actually been in that situation many times. I think pretty much all of us have. The, I, I think, you know, as a practical matter, we all have a certain... Um, you could describe it as political capital. You know, if you want to be just a little bit Machiavellian, uh, we have a finite amount of political capital. We have to maintain relationships in all directions. So long as you have a good relationship with the person, your manager, you know, people who are above you in the overall uh, chain of command, so to speak, so long as you have a good relationship with them, then you should be able to communicate that rather clearly. Like this one particular meeting is not a meeting you feel you need to go to or you feel that you can communicate to and sometimes they'll push back and they'll be like no i actually have a specific question i need to ask you so please come to this i have something very specific i need from you in which case you should go but there's times absolutely when uh you kind of know it's a waste of time and there there has to be some other point in your schedule you know over the course of say a month when you do meet with those people and you do communicate with them and you do keep that relationship strong and you do you know just 
one way or another communicate you are on their team and you're doing everything possible for the for the firm but for any one particular meeting absolutely you should be you know the trust the trust should be built up previously but the tr for any one particular meeting the trust should be there that you can say look i have this terrible deadline on friday i really need to hit it i, I don't think i'm essential to this meeting you know i'm, I'm more on the tech side this is more of a marketing meeting uh, i'm sure you guys will figure it out you guys are you know have all the information you need if you truly have need some information from me just paying me but I, I i think you can handle it uh, for any one particular meeting as long as the trust is there you should be able to just straightforwardly communicate that you don't think you have much to contribute i think any any regular listener to the connected leadership podcast will know that that goes straight to my heart um you know when you talk about the relationship being in place first it makes things easy to have that conversation uh, and i guess as well technology makes it easier now because when you were saying if you have a particular question my mind immediately went to well just dial me into the meeting for that period of time mm -hmm. um so i think that we have more alternatives now that can give us that presence without being there for the whole meeting mm -hmm. where 90 percent of it might not be relevant to, to our role uh so talking about technology i did say i wanted to come back to that so you you said in your earlier answer that um we have other ways to communicate messages other than in meetings. And you talked about Slack and uh, you didn't mention Teams, but that would be an obvious one for, for many of the clients that I work with as well. But all these uh, Yammer, I think you mentioned, all these different channels. Uh, playing devil's advocate a little bit, I would see downsides with that. Uh, I, I would see the advantage of a large group meeting when you're exploring new ideas as the, the 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 breadth of the the delegates in the meeting give you more diversity of thought more cognitive diversity within that conversation you can get different perspectives that feed in now the counter argument to that is you could do all of that on yammer you could do all of that on slack but my question would be but will people participate uh can you truly replace the ability to have a wide-ranging deep diving conversation in person with uh yammer or slack or similar technology no absolutely not uh absolutely not i i agree actually i think i understand what you're saying and i actually agree with the point i think you're making so when i talk about those technologies those are mostly for situations where the communication is going one way you have some information you need to broadcast it you do not need a conversation uh meetings are definitely for conversation uh and um it's often very useful to go in depth on a particular topic. It's often efficient in the sense that uh, both people are participating. You know, a one-on-one -on -one meeting, like I said, one-on-one -on -one meetings, you know, they're effective because both people are participating. The, the meeting happened because someone needs to communicate something and, or ask something from someone else. And a larger meeting can be um, inefficient because you've got multiple people there and not everyone actually needs to be there. But there is a large exception to that. Efficiency is not always the top priority of an organization. It's one of many priorities that needs to be balanced against other concerns and the the biggest emergence the biggest exception that i've run into is when you're dealing with actual emergencies because then the efficiency of the meeting is less important than the speed of coming up with an answer uh just very recently i had a client who had uh business to business they, they sold a service they sold a software service to other businesses they had a, a major outage their servers went down so a few things need to happen very very quickly as quickly as possible first you need to convene a technical team and get an answer you know what is wrong how can we fix it and there again you want to pull together 
you want to pull together everyone. You don't know you, if you don't know what's causing the problem, you cannot know ahead of time who is actually relevant to the meeting. So you just invite everyone. You know, you invite the the the, the database engineer. You invite the the front end designers. You invite the um, people who write the the Java code. You invite the the data engineers in case they wrote some um, analysis script that went crazy and brought down the service. You invite everybody because there you very much want to bring storming session. Not only that, in a in a business to business context, you then have to go and reassure the businesses, your, your customers. You have to go out and you need to have some kind of consistent message when you do that. And typically you have in this particular case, you had a customer support team, a very large customer support team, you had about a hundred people who answered the phone all days. They needed to be given a message that they could communicate to the customers and you need to pull everyone together you need you know head of customer support and head of technology all the people within technology first to diagnose the problem then to fix it then to come up with the strategy about what the future um guardrails will be you know so you can legitimately go to your customers and say hey we figured out what the problem is and we fixed this and we put in guardrails that nothing like this will ever happen again all of that needs to be communicated to the uh, customer support team as quickly as possible and in, in layman's terms without being too technical so that the customer support team can then turn around and communicate all that out to the actual customers, the actual businesses. That's a situation where like the efficiency of the meeting is much less important than, than the speed with which you're developing an answer. So there, calling a whole bunch of people together is absolutely the right solution. And uh, you do, in a sense, want, especially if you don't know what the problem is, you do want sort of a wide open brainstorming session you want people throwing out ideas that you can very quickly start to figure out okay where should we look how do we narrow this down now, now that's an emergency situation which i think is one of the more obvious cases where um efficiency in the meeting is not important compared to say the speed of figuring out a problem but brainstorming in general is something that is one of the exceptions you know brainstorming is often uh you want to especially as an organization grows larger, there's both new opportunities uh, opening up because of the uh, expanded scale of the operation, but also there's the risk of ossifying and, and falling into old habits and, and not being very creative in, in seeing and, and, and adapting to new and changing uh, situations. So having a regular brainstorming session is, is a powerful tool, pulling everyone together. And again, that's a situation where sort of the efficiency of the meeting is, is much less important than having people just sort of throughout a lot of ideas, throughout what they're seeing. You know, in a company that's software, you might think, oh, well, it's the engineers who are going to have all the ideas. But that's not true at all. In my experience, in, in fact, in this um, in this client that I just had this last year, uh, the customer support team was actually uh, very, you know, some very low-level people, very, you know, at, sort of in a sense at the bottom of the chain of command because they were the ones talking to the customers all day. They knew what the concerns of the customers were. They knew that better than the, the, the engineers. So some of the best and most creative ideas about new possibilities were coming from uh, some of the people who in a sense at the lowest rank in the organization. And in a brainstorming, to keep an organization from ossifying and to keep it flexible and ready to adapt to new opportunities as they arise, you very much want to have that as a regular habit. We hold a brainstorming session and, and pull together a, a really mixed group to just sort of brainstorm some ideas. Um, it's absolutely one of the exceptions. Uh, I, I would agree with, I think that's what you're trying to say, and I, yeah. I agree with that very much. Uh, one of the uh, ways in which both myself and other people in my position have tried to uh, make 
meetings on Teams and Zoom more inclusive over the last couple of years is to break those large meetings into smaller groups, the way you would do in a facilitated training program, for example. Is that a technique, if you had to have a large meeting, is that a technique that you would advocate that in any type of large meeting, break it down into smaller groups, get them coming up with ideas, then feed into the bigger body, rather than have a mass conversation? Sure. I mean, there's an absolute limit, both in person and especially online. There's an absolute limit on how many people can actually participate in a meeting. You know, I, even in person, you can get 20 people around the table, but you can't necessarily get, you know, 200 or 300. At a certain point, you know, it becomes more of a, a broadcast model where there's there's just a few people who get a chance to talk. Um, to take advantage of all of the ideas within the company, you know, there's a few different techniques we can talk about. One is a brainstorming session, which we just discussed. Uh, the other is, you know, the, there's different programs you can run, but one would be something like a mentoring program, uh, which is important, you know, I, both in in the traditional context, you know, before the pandemic, uh, back in the back in the old days before the pandemic, long, long ago, like three years ago, uh, we we already knew that mentoring was important for a variety of reasons. One, you're helping people develop, but but two, from the point of view of the organization, it's actually a method of discovering what talent you have in the organization. Because the larger an organization is, often it, it becomes more and more uh, common that you have some amazing gems that are simply undiscovered. You have some perhaps new people who had skills that you didn't know about. Uh, sometimes uh, one of the I'll tell you this one of the greatest. A junior level computer programmers that I ever hired. Uh, she was a woman who had actually been a teacher for 10 years. So she had this whole first career that had nothing to do with engineering. And then she came into the engineering team. And uh, it took me a while to get to know her, but thankfully I had a whole series of one-on-ones with her and I began to realize her true talents. She had abilities from her teaching career that made her a natural leader in the engineering team. She was unusually good at uh, helping other junior level engineers figure out their problems and uh, helping them uh, sort of codify their problems into clear questions that she could then give to me. You know, so often when a junior level engineer has a problem, they don't even know enough to know what to ask for. She was very good about, as a teacher, as a former teacher, she was very good about figuring out what the real problem was, turning that into an easy question that I could easily answer and, and therefore helping them. So she emerged, her leadership ability emerged rather clearly, but still I was very glad to have one-on-one questions with her to really kind of figure out her history and, and realize what she brings to the table. I think I'm going a little bit away from uh, the, the topic you just raised, but I just want to sort of bring this out. Um, mentoring is often done one-on-one -on -one for obvious reasons. You're, it's all about getting to know that one particular person. But having uh, internal classes that might be very small or reviewing certain material, which, you know, in very small groups, uh, that's another technique. And it sort of, it gives you a chance to sort of get to know a slightly smaller group, a slightly a quicker speed. The uh, client I was with for most of the last year, uh, I was doing a lot of hiring. I hired a large number of junior level engineers and I read, sort of ran a small classroom uh, for them of, of three engineers, kind of bringing them up to speed quickly and also getting to hear their concerns. Uh, it was also a chance to sort of, um, because hiring for the company, you know, the, it was a situation where the startup had just received a large amount of investment, and so they were expanding rather rapidly, and our onboarding process was rather rough. And in a sense, uh, talking to groups, small groups of, of people we were just onboarding was a chance for us to figure out some of the rough edges in the onboarding 
process itself and then fine-tune that onboarding process so that we could make it smoother and more efficient as we hired each new person. Um, that's another thing where, where slightly larger meetings uh, become efficient. But to get to the heart of the question I think you were asking, absolutely. Um, you know, Once you get past 20 or 30 people, generally speaking, you, you've got to a scale where it becomes a broadcast model where only a few people can speak. So if you want to run something like a, a brainstorming session and you want to include different people from the organization at different levels, different ranks, different um, fields of specialty, you know, true cross-functional teams, then, yeah, I mean, the, the, you have to, you know, start using, you know, what amounts to st statistical uh, sampling techniques. You're, you're just sort of taking one from this team and one from this team and one from this team and creating a little cross-functional team um, that's, that's representative of the larger teams. But certainly you just can't invite everybody. It just doesn't work. No. Okay. Well, let, let's look at the smaller meetings that you say are more effective. Um, in the book, you talk about handling people differently and not having a one approach suits all uh, approach to meetings. Uh, so, how do you uh, how do you gauge different personality types and then adapt? Uh, your approach, both in those one-to-one -one meetings, but also in group meetings, whatever the size, to ensure that everyone gets to contribute as well. Because obviously, when you get to medium or larger size meetings, particularly, uh, you, you get the, the issue with introverts who may have great ideas, but may not, may be drowned out by the extroverts in the room. So I, th I, I guess I'm sort of morphing things together, but ideally how to identify engage personality types and then run your meetings whatever the size in a way that everyone gets to, to contribute effectively and feel comfortable in those meetings right thank you for that question so let's just focus in for a minute on the question of extroverts uh versus introverts uh often extroverts they really love to talk now i want to do this especially with sales teams you know i I can come into an organization and advocate, you know, uh, just use just use email if you need to communicate information, just broadcast information, just use WhatsApp, just use Slack, just write it. Uh, but, you know, you also have to adapt to the actual strengths of the team, the strengths and weaknesses of the team. You can't just come in with these edicts and try to force them on the on an organization. You have to, you know, people, every person is unique and you have to adapt your you're over, you can come. You can have certain theories about how you want to proceed in a leadership role, but then you have to adapt to the actual strengths and weaknesses of the team. I've known some salespeople who are absolutely fantastic salespeople, but they are very extroverted. It's part of what makes them so successful. They love going out and talking to the customer. It's the you know their favorite part of the day, but they actually hate writing stuff down, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of their yeah. their weakness that you know has to you know people have to kind of work around, and uh, sometimes that's quite a serious issue. You know, I just mentioned uh, Slack and WhatsApp and Yammer and all that, but that those are actually minor issues. You know, the much more serious issue that you sometimes get with very extroverted salespeople who love to talk is that the company has typically some formal CRM like Salesforce or, or Handshake or um, uh, you know uh, one of the more um, well known. CRMs and some companies invest millions of dollars to customize these CRMs so that the sales team is efficient. Uh, but then some of the most successful, um, extroverted, talkative uh, salespeople are minor rebels when it comes to actually using the uh, the software. So it, it's completely a uh, pressure yeah. to sort of you know bring them on board. Absolutely, I, I think anyone who knows anything about sales teams has has yes. at least run into this issue once or twice. So. You have to adapt to the actual strengths and weaknesses of of the team. If you've got a bunch of uh, extroverts who are you know stars in their 
specialty. Uh, you certainly have to, you know, provide room for them to uh, talk and play to their strengths somewhat. But, I mean, there's obviously a limit on how far you can go. Even when they are <clears throat> um, absolute stars, you still, if you have some self-process, uh, you still need them to adapt somewhat. I mean, after all, there is, of course, the risk that they might quit or, you know, develop some illness and they drop out and they were in the middle of nurturing 20 different accounts. You don't want to lose those 20 different accounts. So there, there had to be some process where the documentation happened. And also, I'll say, you know, it's a bit of a stereotype to think that the most successful salespeople are always extroverts, but that really isn't true. You know, I mean, sales is all about relationships, uh, probably more than almost any other part of business. Sales is about developing human connection. And that is something that introverts are actually quite good at, you know, when it comes to just having a quiet talk and really getting to know the people who are in that other company that you're trying to sell to. Um, you know, for any uh, for any sales team, you'll, you'll find some are introverted and, and very, very successful at what they do. So, um, yeah, you just to recap that uh you can have some general ideas you know the, the kinds of advice that i give i think is very very helpful at a high level but then when you actually come into an organization you do need to get to know the people in that organization you do need to adapt the advice to the strengths and weaknesses of the people who are actually in that organization now, i think your question had a second part can you remind me of the second yeah part? yeah it was about how you um manage different uh personality styles generally uh, within meetings and bring the best out of them, whether it's one-to-one, -one, uh, whether it, it's a group. that It really stood out for me in the book where you talked about, uh, and this sort of goes to my next question as well, um, but I will park that, but it, it goes to the same thing. You talk about talking very bluntly and directly to people. Yeah. You, you've got some case studies and there was one where someone was not giving you the internal service that you expected. Mm -hmm. and you were very blunt in the way that you addressed the issue with him to the point where he eventually, after a lot of excuses, put his hands up and said, no, you're absolutely right. And you were, you were emphasizing, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? And your summary from that story was that sometimes you have to be blunt. Sometimes you have to talk to people that way, but you can't do that with everyone. No, so, and I want... Yeah. So, so that was the question. It was about how you addressed different personality types within meetings to bring the best out of everyone. Right. That's actually a huge topic. Uh, and I, I could probably only uh, address a small part of it right here, but let me say most of the time I would encourage people to, you know, be their best selves at work. I'm not going to micromanage uh, their tone. I'm not going to micromanage, um, you know, the, I don't want them to feel stifled. I don't want them to feel like they have to suppress a large part of their personality. So long as it doesn't, as long as their personality is not having a negative effect at work. But there are times when, when it does. You know, one vice that I've seen in our online world, especially since the start of the pandemic, I don't know why this is, but people will say a lot of things in chat online that they would never say face to face. Yeah. They would just never the kind of anger that they sometimes express, which unless they're complete psychopaths, they would never say it face to face, but somehow they feel they have the freedom to do that. And I've seen some people who unfortunately they have a certain annoyance, which might start off as a minor annoyance. And then it slowly builds up and it gets worse and worse. And they start posting little passive aggressive messages on, uh, on Slack uh, until finally 
you know, they need to be called out. Now, they should call themselves out, really, if, if they're being smart about their own career. But also, ultimately, it is responsibility of leadership to step in. And it's the, very much the kind of thing that should be addressed only in a one-on-one -on -one context. You generally, if you call them out in a, in a group setting, they will become defensive and they they will defend themselves they will they will fight back they will argue they will explain themselves they might try to accuse someone else in the organization of sabotaging them they might bring the whole dispute out into the public which you really don't want it's very much the kind of thing that should be resolved one-on-one because only in a one-on-one -on -one context are they really going to listen to what you have to say uh it's um and and we you have to sometimes remind people look if you have an issue with this other person have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with that other person and the two of you are adults try to work it out if the two of you cannot work it out on your own then ultimately you can escalate it to me and i'll i'll get involved as well but you know do you really want that i mean you are professionals you are adults it's best for everyone if you can actually just talk this thing through but but above all else don't don't be writing angry little remarks in, in a in any kind of public forum whether that be slack or a, a group email or, or whatever what i uh, referencing the issue where that you just I think brought up, there was a, a situation where I was running a, a tech team and I needed, uh, you know, above all else, I just need the engineers to be honest with me. This one particular engineer uh, was I think not giving me factual answers when a bug developed, and the product manager was one of the best product managers I've ever ever dealt with, and she was carefully documenting this bug and, and the search functionality that we had. But when I said, oh, can, you know, when I said to the engineer, can you please take a look at that? Uh, he just kind of came back with vague excuses. He, he said it wasn't really a bug, that the product manager had just misunderstood the situation. And then finally I had to, you know, this, we went through a few rounds of this where the product manager was like, no, listen, this really is a mistake. There's some uh, deals that we're trying to sell. We want it to show up in the search results for these keywords and they're just not showing up. It's a definite bug. And the, the engineer was kind of digging in and, and not answering it. So finally, we worked out the technical issue. But by that point, the technical issue had become almost minor compared to the personnel issue that I then had to deal with. So I, he, he was working in a different city, so this happened online. But still, I asked for a, a direct conversation with him, uh, you know, what we had over Zoom. And I want to emphasize that there's a way of being direct that is still respectful. You know, I, I emphasize in the book, um, you know, I didn't use any curse words. And I did not clean that up for the book. I generally, at work, I don't use curse words because the risk of that coming across is being disrespectful. It's just too large a risk. So I think that people in leadership positions, generally speaking, should not use curse words. The, the, there's, you want to be respectful, but you also want to be direct. And you need, if, if I need something from someone who's reporting to me, I want to communicate it very clearly. I want to set expectations very clearly. If I needed something from them and they dis disappointed me, I want them to understand why that was disappointing. And then I need to keep pressing until I'm absolutely sure that they get it. You know, I need to keep pressing until they stop being defensive and they stop making excuses and they stop trying to deflect the blame and they just totally get what I need from them. And that is something that can happen with me being respectful, but also very direct and transparent and honest. I Let me tell you a little story. Um, I had the CEO at one point who had a tendency to just allow his frustrations to bubble up and then he would yell at the whole room. He was a client that I was advising and I kept telling him, look, 
shouting at the room is not productive. You don't want to do that. And what he said to me, it was an interesting remark. He said, yeah, look, it would be great if we were all Zen Buddhists, right? It'd be great if we were all really chill. But, you know, I've got to be practical. I've got a business to run. And the remark really took me by surprise because it, the, his style of thinking was so different from my own. Being direct and honest is practical. It's one of the most practical leadership techniques there are. Shouting at a room is not practical. But I've come to realize there are some people who are never really direct and honest until they are angry and shouting. So they tend to run the two things together. And if, if there's one lesson that I would like to give to leaders all over the world, it's just realize those are two different things. Being angry and being very direct and honest, those are two separate things. You may have, I don't know, grown up in a household where you had a parent who ran the two things together, you know, or maybe you just got into a bad habit when you were young. But it's crucial to realize those are two separate things. All the directness and honesty and transparency that some people apparently associate with angry shouting, you can do all of that without the angry shouting, without the curse words. You can do all of that and still be respectful to the people you're talking with. Lawrence, uh, there's so much more I'd love to discuss, uh, but our, our time is up. Um, I think that's a really great point to end on. Uh, it, it was a story that, that, that stood out for me in the book. Um, and just that, the directness, you, you put the whole dialogue between the two of you in. And you, as you say, you emphasize your directness, you emphasize the respect and the lack of curse words as well. Um, but then what also came from it is that you wouldn't necessarily take the same approach with someone else. And I think that when you're, this is where you are arguing for one-to-one -one meetings uh, as much more productive than mass meetings because you can have the different conversations with different people in the key way. Uh, and, you know, going to the point of, of this podcast, you're going to deepen relationships by doing that as well, aren't you? Yes. Uh, so so uh, absolutely on topic, I think you make a very strong case for smaller meetings, not necessarily fewer, but smaller and more productive and better use of your time. Um, so thank you very much for that. Thank you for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been fantastic. My pleasure. So thanks to Lawrence for joining me again. Uh, as I said, it's, it's something that comes up time and again. It is a it's a topic that a lot of people feel passionately about not everyone passionately enough to write a book about it but it's great that it's out there and it is it, it, it's a broad book we didn't really have a chance to go into it but it doesn't just say have more small meetings and fewer large meetings it does go into different types of meetings it talks about recruitment uh, it talks about a lot more so it is well worth uh, having a look at that book uh, why small meetings don't work um, uh, and and uh, large meetings are a waste of time uh, by Lawrence Krippner so do, do check that out uh, and, and thank you for, for Lawrence uh, for joining me uh, and thank you for joining me uh, if you've enjoyed this please do share it on social media uh, if you go to Spotify or Podfollow or Apple, wherever you listen to your podcast and you can leave a rating or a review. I always appreciate it. Do come back to me. Tell me what you think about these conversations. I'll be posting a couple of clips from this uh, on social media. Join the conversation there. And whatever you do, join me again for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe 
tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.